and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, June the 25th, 2023. Uh, one week after Father's Day. We missed Father's Day last week because I was actually in Latvia. Um, in the Baltics, so we're going to try and at least celebrate it in part today. The uh, the Wikipedia entry on Father's Day features uh, a piece of art by a man called Josephus Laurentius uh, Dickmans, a, a Belgium artist of a young woman uh, getting some advice from her seated, dignified father. And we have done some shows on the wisdom of fathers. We did one uh, in May of this year with the Canadian writer Charles Foran, uh, who has a new book out, Just Once No More, on fathers, sons, and who we are until we are no longer. It's really a book about the wisdom or what he learned from his very stoic father. Um, and we've done lots of shows on how fathers need to look after their daughters, one with uh, a woman, Kimberly Wolf, last year, book about talking with her, a dad's essential guide to raising healthy, confident and capable daughters. It's all very well, of course, on Father's Day, but the reality is often rather different. My guest today, um, Beth Rayner, has a very different view, I think, of fatherhood. She had a wonderful guest essay uh, at the beginning of June uh, in the New York Times. My father taught me the Benefits of Delusion. It's a very inspiring essay, and in part, it's also bound up in her new novel, Fireworks Every Night, a novel. Beth is joining us from her uh, Manhattan, uh, Washington Heights kitchen. Beth, congratulations on the new book. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, well, you're welcome, Beth. So, um, you write much more honestly about fathers. What is it about fathers that do you think that we perhaps fantasize about? That we <laughs> do, do you think we, and I speak as a father, do you think we expect too much of fathers? Oh my gosh. Do we expect too much of fathers? Um, no. I don't think so. I, I think um, in my experience with my father, who I loved very much and who had an enormous impact on my life, I think what makes things a little sad for me is that I don't know how much he really enjoyed being a father. Um, and I think that's probably a, a truth for a lot of dads out there. Um, it might not come that naturally, or fatherhood might might be something that they just don't really enjoy or really understand. Yet, you know, they they sh the duty is there and they provide, but you know, their mind and their heart might be somewhere else. Tell me about your father. Not everyone would have re uh, read uh, <laughs> this wonderful op-ed, My Father Taught Me the Benefits of Delusion. And, and tell me a little bit about how your father got into this, this new novel, Fireworks Every Night, or if, if, if the, the central male figure in the book is really um, a, a replication of your father. 
Um, yes, uh, the father and fireworks every every night. Calvis Brokowski is is a complete replication of my father, um, Jerry Raymer in real life. My dad um, was born in a small coal mining town in southeastern Ohio. His dad was a coal miner, um, and he he broke free of his, um, of his roots when I was very young. Our, his, my father's car dealership burned down and we moved to Florida. And it was a much better life for us um, for a short amount of time. And so, um, but with the dad and fireworks every night and with my dad in real life, um, he worked incredibly hard. He was a, a fantastic provider. I had everything I ever wanted materially growing up. Um, and then, you know, my father uh, became homeless. <laughs> and so it was very hard for me as a young adult. Um, I grew up with this kind of middle-class upbringing, what I thought was middle-class. I had an intact family. My parents were married for 37 years. And yet, um, as a young adult, when I started like kind of making, you know, having achievements, I went to Columbia, I went to, you know, I bought a house, I published a first book. And my family, you know, at that point had imploded and my father was living on the streets. And so I'd have these like I'd had this new circle of friends and acquaintances and at parties and things it would come up like, where's your family? And I never knew what to say. It was some, it was such a simple question, but I found it like impossible to answer. And so I think that's that's kind of what um motivated me and inspired me to write fireworks was to try to understand the psychological and social forces of my upbringing, of my parents' upbringing, certainly of my father, to kind of learn how it, how my family imploded. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned your first book. People would be familiar. Lay the favorite, a story about gamblers. Uh, major, major best-selling book. Got made into a wonderful movie too, featuring Bruce Willis and Catherine Zeta-Jones. So. You know your way around the publishing business. Um, the, the funny thing about, well, I'm not sure if it's the funny thing about all this, is that, um, and, and this is how Kirk has described it. They loved the book. They gave it a, a starred review, which is quite a compliment. They, they said, this unsparing version of the modern American tragedy is more fun to read than can be possibly right. And the same could be true about your father. As you say in your uh, in your Times op-ed, um, uh, in 2015, at the height of your father's homelessness, he took you on vacation. Here was it, there was a certain ir irrepressibility about him, wasn't there? Oh yeah, yes, he was eccentric. He was um, so good looking, so charming. Um, he called the shots. A very uh, in uh, such a talented car salesman. I mean. I can imagine he could sell anyone anything. Yes, and he did. I mean, the, the fact that we were able to leave our kind of small town in Ohio, his small town, his, you know, this, I'm talking 500 people live in this town. It's It still doesn't have Wi-Fi. I mean, it's so, it is so isolated. The fact that he got out of there and was able to support a family of four. My mom never worked. We had... Um, you know, we built our home in Florida and 
we did that on, on, he made all of that happen. He was a dreamer. He had, he had a vision and he would work to make things happen. Um, so, and he was so ambitious. And so you don't think of someone like that, you know, kind of becoming homeless at the end. It was a choice. I mean, he chose to, to become homeless and it was a, a very, I don't, I don't know what it was a very eye-opening experience for me about human nature and masculinity. And also life in America. You know, when I was yes. looking at the book, I mean, the one that the, 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 the movie that comes to mind is the Florida project. It's a very, it's, it's, it's the quintessential American story. I mean, one thing that comes to mind, Beth is guys like your father, sometimes they end up homeless with nothing and sometimes they end up enormously wealthy. Why wasn't he a great success? at least in terms of business. Why Why did he keep on getting fired as a car salesman? I would have thought they would have loved him. He sold cars. That's what yeah, he did. He, he was a maverick. I, I think I mentioned in my New York Times piece, my dad, you know, he punched one of his bosses one time. I remember him coming home with like the blood on his shirt and cleaning the blood, his boss's blood off his shirt at right. the kitchen sink. He was very... Um, like I said, it was his way or the highway. He did not do well with authority. Um, that's a that's a, another all-American, certainly a very male all-American thing, right? Yes. Um, so that was that was something that caused some issues. Um, and I think my dad was such a dreamer. You know, he rolled the dice so much in his life, and you know, they just, he rolled the dice too much. I think even as he got older, you know, there was never, as he reached his sixties and his late sixties and, you know, he, um, the way he and my mother handled their divorce really, um, you know, he didn't want to pay her alimony. And so he basically stopped working. And you, you mentioned rolling the dice, uh, as I said, your last book which was a huge success lay the favorite the memoir of gambling is literally about gambling is there a are these two books quite intimately connected in many ways uh, his life the life you had growing up and um the life of gambling is is i mean sometimes the cliche is living in america is like living in casino is there some truth to that oh yeah 100 percent. i mean gambling uh is Gambling was like a main theme in the latest favorite. It was the theme. Um, and I mean, they're definitely connected. I mean, fireworks every night is, is very autobiographical. Um, everything that CC, our main character kind of deals with was something was what I dealt with growing up. And let's just remember what does CC stand for Beth? Um, Canadian club which was his favorite drink or the, the fictional guy. And I assume your dad's as well. Right. <laughs> um, so as much as, yes, the theme of Lay the Favorite was gambling. Gambling is a huge theme in my life. But I think the main theme with fireworks is survival. Um, you know, everyone in this book is trying to survive. Um and it's not just this family is trying to survive. Every member in this family is trying to survive. But it's also the greater community of South Florida. Every, everything is hanging right. 
a thread. It's the wildlife, the physical structures of the homes. You know, these places are built on swamps. Everything is hanging on by a thread there. And so my book kind of captures what life is like when that's the case. It's, and again, I don't want to fall into too many cliches, but it is the American story. Um, how do you keep living when your home is no longer habitable? That's the question, and that's a very pressing question for modern-day society. Florida somehow it, it encapsulate that. What about, uh, I mean, you're obviously a woman. The, the, the women in the book, um, in the novel, uh, Cece's mother is 35 going on 17, a housewife who just wants to drive a Mustang and hang out at the mall. Was that like your mom? <laughs> uh, my mom was um I she was a little like that. My mom is a very complex person. Um I don't know even where to start with my mom. <laughs> I mean it was it was hard to to capture the mom character in the book because the, my my mother, that mother, she's kind of a mystery still. Um you know, like she didn't have a job and they lived a kind of, we lived a kind of isolated existence. And of course, when you're a woman and you don't have a job outside the home, that's fine, but only for a short amount of time. You know, your kids do need you. You find joy in being with the young children. You have this purpose. But as the kids get older and that kind of, that, that disappears or that's kind of pulled away from you, um, I think my mom, my mom got pretty bored and my mom was very frustrated in her marriage and my mom didn't see a lot of ways out of that marriage. Um, it was a very oppressive place for her, um, even though, you know, it was also kind of fun. She did have the Mustang, you know, she did have a nice house. She had the pool. But so your mom had the Mustang too. So this is... Oh, yeah. <laughs> We all had Mustangs. Like my dad would always get us Mustangs. Well, I guess he was, that was the family business. So he could just bring it home from the office. I'm sure he never exactly. um, Beth, uh, the, the stereotype of the female, at least in contemporary America, certainly from a, a feminist point of view, is that it's the woman who does, does the hard work. The man goes out, he's the dreamer. He, he's the one who invests and fails and gets fired and drinks too much. And it's the woman who stays at home and does all the work and keeps the family together. That clearly wasn't your experience, and that's not the narrative in fireworks every night. Um, that, well, it kind of is. I mean, my dad was the one who went out and made things happen, and my mom. I think the irony in fireworks every night is that, you know, Cece has a stay at home mom, and it seems like when you have these a stay at home mom, like, um. I don't know that your life is going to be a little more predictable or something, but that's not always the case. You know, some of these stay at home moms are, you know, they're, they're bored and again, they're isolated and they start looking for things elsewhere. And, you know, that's what happens in CC's home. You know, the mom, while all eyes are on the dad, cause he's so mischievous. He's, he's never up to any good. He's always drinking, staying out late, um, picking up hookers, you know, something's brewing with the mom and it kind of goes unnoticed and, and pushed away until it, you know, until there's the explosion. And that's kind of the climax of the story. 
We all want to give away the climax of the story because we want everyone to read the book. It's going to make a great movie too, like uh, your first book, uh, Lay the Favourite. In your op-ed, you say that um, you inherited your father's quote-unquote philosophy um, and you call it adaptive delusion. So you took out $120,000 at Columbia and yet, you know, that sounds kind of insane. And on the other hand, it probably wasn't that dumb a thing to do. You're a, a well-known writer. You've got a, a major new novel out published by Random House. Your, your Lay the Favorite did brilliantly, got picked up by Hollywood. So in a way, your, your father's mindset is not an, an entirely delusional one. Or if you like, delusion isn't a bad thing, is it, Ben? Exactly. I think you need, you need a healthy amount of delusion to make it through life. Um, it's a, it is a motivator and it does take the edge off things. Um, and it is inspiring. I mean, why not be a little delusional? People kind of use it. It has negative connotation. Oh, you're so delusional face reality. Why, you know, why not shoot for the stars, take out the student loans. Okay. You know, you're going to be broke for a long time, but security doesn't really exist anyway. So it's like, have some fun because you're going to die as my dad dies and my dad died during the pandemic. And I wrote about it in the New York times piece and my dad had nothing. My dad died with one belonging. Right, that's what um, you say. He died uh, with one possession, a can of armor treat luncheon loaf. Uh, and you say for a man who spent 40 years in the car business, working 12 hour days to arrive at the end of his life owning so little may seem tragic, but it isn't really. I mean, as 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 we all know, you can't take it with you. You can die with a hundred million dollars, but so what? Exactly. And I think in the end, my dad did have he had a good time. And I don't think he had many regrets at all. Did you so, ever have real con- I mean real quote unquote real conversations with him about his life, his regrets. Or was he a hard man to pierce in that sense? Or did he oh, no, have an internal dad. life to be pierced? <laughs> um, my dad, um, he was a, he was like, he had some real honest conversations with me. Um, I think my dad really respected me. I think he thought I was an intelligent person who could kind of handle a lot that he threw out there. Um, and definitely towards the end of his life, I mean, every time I saw him, I made it a point to talk to him about, you know, why he made the decisions he made and how he felt. I recorded a lot of our conversations. I held, you know, I had a lot of interviews with him while he was like living on the street. Um, (laughs) so yes, my dad was capable of opening his heart and being very honest and, and being very straight with me. Yeah, well, I live, uh, Beth, in San Francisco where there's an enormous amount of homelessness. It's always treated as yeah. a huge problem for people who have homes, having to step over homeless people. But I guess your book, uh, the, the the Fireworks Every Night, and uh, the stuff about your father reminds us that homeless people have histories as well. Oh, Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, I think I spent a lot of time with a lot of homeless men um, at the before my dad lived on the street. He did go through a lot of like the shelters. Um, 
you know, he made, he made the rounds, churches. I mean, he went everywhere and I would meet his, his friends and, you know, most of them had been like homeowners, you know, most of, they almost all had kids, you know, these aren't, sometimes we think like, oh, they, these people have been drug addicts since they were 16 and they got kicked out. No, they lived very full lives and this was the end game for them, you know, and some, you know, again, my dad kind of made the conscious decision to be homeless. Um, I got him many apartments. I put first, last security down on several apartments and he would just leave them. Um, he just did not want any responsibility. And there were a lot of men like that, you know, that he would meet and I would meet their kids and we would talk about how hard it is to maintain a relationship with a homeless parent. And that's, that's just, I think, the reality of a lot of people's lives right now. As I said, I just came back from uh, the Baltics, from Latvia and Lithuania. I spent last week there. I was doing some speeches. And uh, one of the things that struck me about both Riga and Vilnius, both reasonably large cities, the capitals of, of Latvia and, and Lithuania, is there are no homeless people there at all. You walk around the city at night and everyone has homes, or if they don't, they certainly don't sleep on the street. What's happened in America, Beth, that we have these, these armies of homeless people, certainly in San Francisco, I'm sure in Florida, certainly in New York as well. Is there something wrong with America or is it perhaps a reflection of some of the strengths of America that it's capable of producing men like your father? So quietly yes. independent and happy and pleased with themselves, even if they're homeless. <laughs> I mean, it might be a mix. I think, you know, I think um, affordable housing is definitely a problem in America. It is hard to find. I'm sorry, there's going to be sirens. They're going after the homeless people. <laughs> But, um, um, you know, it's very hard to find affordable housing. That is true. That's like across the board. Um, but then I also think there is an opioid crisis going on that's not far from being over. There's a lot of addiction out there. And then, yes, there's also people like my father who you go through a divorce late in life or you you're not good with money. You've blown through your, your 401k. And it's like, okay, I'll just, I'll live on the streets. My, you know, as I mentioned in my piece, my dad was in the army and he, he would always say, you know, I lived in a pup tent in a pup tent in the wilderness. And this is no different. Being homeless is no different. And I think that is, you know, there's that. He was the in the army, Beth. Did, does America owe him more? I mean, he, he risked his life for the country. I'm not sure if the country risked its life for him. Oh, definitely not. Um, I mean, there's, you know, my dad was in and out of the VA at some point. And um, there's the VA on Blue Heron Boulevard in West Palm Beach. I spent a lot of time there. And, and there's a smoking section. And I would always go to this, I, you know, I don't know how many hospitals have smoking sections anymore. But this one was like a bustling smoking oh. section at a hospital. I mean, just dozens and dozens and dozens of men, all ages. I mean, just every walk of life you can imagine, every race and they would just all have these stories and it was such a community and I mean American 100% failed them you know you have these young guys who fought in Iraq and there there they are with no leg no arm and telling their story and smoking a cigarette and I mean it's it's very it's very profound 
I mean, you know, I think that, you know, there's, they're exploited poor, they're poor, or they don't have many resources, or they don't have much of a family unit, which is why they probably joined the army or the army, you know, the military in the first place. And here they are now. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, your father kind of got away with it. He was in a way lucky to be born into his generation. I think the equivalent of your father today would lead a much less glamorous, much more miserable life, wouldn't he? Yes, you're 100% right. Yeah. I mean, he, there would be no, uh, there would be no um, holidays and lots of cars. It would just be opioids and homelessness and violence. Yeah. Um, the book is, in a way, uh, a book about Florida, fireworks every night. It's a South Florida drama narrative, if that's the right way of putting it. Uh, a quote from the book, Florida, we got it all, motorsports, ribs, beer, you can drive on the sand right up to the ocean, fireworks every night. And of course, when we think of fireworks every night in Florida, we think of a certain Ron DeSantis who's running for president, who seems to be popular in Florida, who's exporting, at least in his mind, Florida's values to the rest of the country, anti-immigrant values, book banning values. What is it about Florida, um, Beth, that makes it such a bizarre place? And and what does your book tell us about the Florida of Ron DeSantis? Oh, gosh. Oh, that's a really complex <laughs> question. Um I don't know if Florida is such a, a a completely wacky place. I think Florida is just America. And I think there's a lot of desperation in that state, just as there's a lot of desperation right now in many parts of America. And um, there's a lot of I don't know, you know, when you see the Thing about Florida man and Florida woman. I mean, again, I think this goes back to it. There, a lot of people are unhinged, and so they start doing these. They get into this cycle. It's almost like a vortex of of bad decisions. And before you know it, they're on their new on the news talking about you know they have called nine one one five hundred times because there's no beer at the Seven Eleven or whatever. I think this is just. Um, I just think there's a lot of desperate people in America. <laughs> That's all I think. And I think that um, in my book, I treat Florida as a character. Um, when I with my Florida, with my family in the 80s, Florida was an absolute paradise. It was beautiful. It was affordable. Um, it was... It was fun. It was relaxing. It was a place where you would go to achieve the American dream. And in the book, you know, but so that's how it's seen at the very beginning of the book, an absolute paradise. And by the end, it's just been exploited. And, um, you know, there's the Everglades are like disappearing and it's very hard to find a place to live there that's affordable. And it's just been exploited um, by the wealthy. And so that's kind of, I think that's the reality in Florida too. A lot of people have been left behind there. 
Yeah, I think uh, in uh, in the Bay Area, we're thrilled that we shipped off a lot of our tech entrepreneurs to Florida, and I hope they stay there. Is there a new Florida, Beth, in America, or is Florida the end of the end of the American dream, or what what you describe as the end of the American dream in Florida is 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 the final uh, the final uh, destination? That there's no there's nowhere beyond Florida. Once you're on the Keys, that's it. <laughs> Um, there is a new Florida. I'm, I'm reporting my next book. And so it, it takes yeah. place in Florida once again. And so I've spent a lot of time there. And it's, I do notice, um, it's almost like that gentle, misfit, mango farm woman in her moo moo that used to be like on every in every neighborhood, you don't really see that Floridian anymore. You see people in really nice SUVs. Um, there's, um, there are local politics, you know, so many posters of the politicians who are running, they have their guns. Um, my son went to camp there last year and I, it's a nice camp in Palm Beach Gardens, which is a really like lovely suburb. And I would take him to the camp and in the morning, Right next to the camp, there's this billboard of this woman who's running for office. She has her AR-15. She has a bait. This is the picture on the poster. She has a baby on her back. And that's just her. That's her announcement that she's running for office. And so it's like, why? How? Like, why is everyone just okay with this? I don't want to see a picture of guns when I'm dropping my five-year-old off at the, at the little camp. Um, but it doesn't really seem to phase this new wave of Floridians. And DeSantis is loved there. Every restaurant you go to, there is a sign outside thanking him. Thank you, Ron, for staying open because of the pandemic, because you did not shut down Florida. Our, our restaurant has survived. Our children are going to college. You know, it is like an outpouring of absolute support. Yeah, and that's a, a lot of people have, have written off DeSantis because he got off to a bad start. But <laughs> I, I suspect, actually, that if I had to bet on the next president of America, it would be DeSantis because I think he somehow captures perhaps the delusional quality, not just of Florida, but of America. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's kind of like good at what he does. Um, he's a very efficient politician. I mean, what surprises me, I don't know why he just doesn't want to stay, you know, beloved in Florida. I mean, he, he kind of has it made there. I don't know why he even wants to bother. I guess he's just like a power hungry. Well, you can say the same about your father. Why did he... Should have kept his job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's just like very egotistical. And what, what happened, do you think? I mean, you know a little bit about Florida. You've just written this novel about it. You've lived there, grew up there. What would happen if DeSantis becomes president? What would America begin to look like? It's not He's not Trump, is he? He's different. In a way, perhaps he's more interesting. Oh, gosh, really? Why? How? how well, is interesting. I, I don't mean better or worse, simply... There's more to him. He's more complicated. And the America he reflects and, re and represents is more complicated than the, the, the reality television uh, version of America that Trump represents. Well, yeah, because I think DeSantis is a much more intelligent, much more efficient 
dictator. I mean, he's got the real, he's got the power to dictate. <laughs> and he's an intellectual. He's a yeah. you know, graduate of Harvard and Yale Law School. So he's, he's got a good mind in contrast to, to Trump. He, just makes he knows sense. what he's doing, where I think Trump is, you know, Trump can be just so emotional and shoot from the hip. And, you know, that appeals to people. And, you know, Trump has done this thing where, you know, he's, Many, many people, including many of my friends and relatives in Florida and Ohio, they see him as an underdog. You know, these working class people see him as one of them. And so I don't think DeSantis has that. Um, you know, he just has more, um, I'm in charge and I'm going to do things the way I want to do them and they will get done. <laughs> DeSantis, of course, has daughters, which he stresses. He always appears in public with them. I wonder what kind of father he is. Oh, we'll have to get God. his daughters on the show. Oh, you should. I, I, yeah, I, no, I, was I, about what kind I of somehow thing. don't think they would want to do <laughs> You it. should ask them, though. They might have a oh, lot well. well, maybe if you, you can help me, you ask them. So, finally, Beth, them. <laughs> if, uh, we, you got a date. If, uh, if we can get the DeSantis girls on the show, then we'll do it. <laughs> we'll probably get distributed on one of the major networks. Uh, finally, uh, congratulations again on this wonderful new novel, Fireworks Every Night, full of your own vitality and color and complexity. You, you mentioned in your Times piece that you took your father's mindset, but it's more than that, isn't it? Just talking to you and, and, and looking at some of your work. You have that vitality and optimism. You inherited that from him and it infuses your work as well. So in a sense, you are very much your father's daughter. Oh, yeah. Even if he wasn't a writer or perhaps even a reader. <laughs> He was a storyteller. You have to tell stories to buy cars or to sell cars. And yes, I'm, I'm such an optimist. I mean, my dad and I, every time we bought a lottery ticket, this is from the time I was five until, you know, I was 40 something when he died. I think I was 43. We always thought we were going to win. Yeah, I, I'm the opposite. Yeah, so you're you're the guy that's the run out and think you're always going to win. I always wonder why anyone ever would buy a, a lottery ticket. You got to believe I'm very un-American in that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we believed we were going to win. We were certain we were going to win, and we would. It would be such a shock every single time that we did not win. And it's fireworks uh, every night. Is that your your lottery ticket, Beth, or do you think of it differently? <laughs> Oh, gosh, I, I don't see it as a lottery ticket. I just see it, see it as a great opportunity. Writing is such a great opportunity to um, to reach people and to let other people know, you know, that they're not alone, um, that we all go through, you know, some really difficult things in life and we come out, you know, we're still living, we're still here, we're still making a life for ourselves. 